Praise God. Praise God. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this time of worship through music this morning. Thank you again for the majestic picture of your eternal power, your creative and your sustaining work, Lord, that we read from Job chapter 38. And Lord, as we come to Scripture now and study from 2 Corinthians, we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, that you would sweep away those distractions that would seek to creep in. We think of the parable of Jesus where a man went out into his field to sow the seed and some of the seed was immediately plucked up by the ravens, representing Satan's attempt to steal the gospel. And I pray that you would protect us from the enemy and from his attempts, Lord, to take away your wonderful truth. I pray that your word would be embedded deep within our hearts and that it would transform us today and forever. Bless this time, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to go ahead and turn with me over to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be finishing up 2 Corinthians chapter 12 this morning, looking at the last couple of verses, concluding what we started a couple weeks ago, looking at the earlier verses of this chapter. We saw earlier in chapter 12 that the Corinthians were showing some concerning signs in their growth. Paul and many others had poured many hours into this church, and yet they were still showing signs of immaturity. We looked at some of those signs of immaturity last week, signs like spiritual forgetfulness, forgetting how good God had been to them and how much God had done, and even forgetting just the signs and wonders that Paul had performed in their midst as authenticating proofs that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. We also saw signs of spiritual unbelief, of how they were doubting the goodness of God. They were forgetting about the gospel and and even distrusting those leaders which God had raised up to care for and shepherd the church. They'd begun to view themselves as victims rather than victors. They were listening to false teachers rather than the apostle who had planted the church at great personal sacrifice and even demonstrated his credentials through many miracles. Now it would seem that they are at risk of losing all the ground that the apostle had worked so hard to achieve in this church. Paul intends to return to Corinth. He says in chapter 13, 1, this is the third time I am coming to you. He, uh, he has on his itinerary to visit Corinth very soon, and he concludes this chapter by sharing what his biggest fear is that he is going to find when he arrives in Corinth. He says in chapter 12, verse 20, for I fear. The Greek word is phobeo, from which we get our English word phobia. It means something which terrifies, something which frightens or seizes you with fear, even causes you to flee away. All I have to do is hear a squeal and a scream from the bathroom, and I know that one of my girls has found another spider. It's a phobia, right, that some of us have. Paul shares a kind of phobia, if you will, here in 2 Corinthians 12. What makes a man afraid who has endured beatings, imprisonments, stoning to death, shipwrecks on multiple occasions? Is it, is it some personal enemy that he's going to find that might threaten to kill him when, we get, when he gets to Corinth? Is it the threat of another riot or persecution? And the answer is no. No doubt he was well aware of the risks and the realities of danger that existed whenever he went into a, either a city he had been at before or even a new frontier city that he had not been to. But he had already learned contentment and counted his life as nothing. He'd learned somehow 
by the courage that God gives to not be afraid in those things. So what then is Paul's fear? What's his phobia? He says that his fear is that when he comes on his third visit to Corinth, that he will discover that the church has been unresponsive to the word of God. That's a scary thing for the apostle. That's frankly a scary thing for a pastor. The God's people who hear the word of God taught and preached and written about that they are unresponsive to the transforming power of the gospel. Notice what he says now in verses 20 and 21. For I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced." Paul said something similar to the Thessalonian church, but on a much more positive note. After he had left Thessalonica, he was there for a short period of time, and he couldn't get the church off of his mind. He thought about them. He thanked the Lord for them. He prayed for them. He was worried about them. And he said in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, for this reason, I couldn't bear it any longer, so I I sent some friends to learn about your faith for fear that someone and somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He was afraid that Satan the tempter would come in and undermine all the progress that Paul had made in Thessalonica and here in Corinth as well. Have you ever made a recipe but left out a very important ingredient? You know how disastrous that can be and What's funny is occasionally a cookbook will even leave out an ingredient in their recipe or they'll have some kind of a typographical error and at best it might taste a little bad. At worst, it can be utterly disastrous. One cook, a professional tester and caterer said that she found a recipe that was calling for chicken tenders but it said to cook them for 45 minutes at 450 degrees. She said the result at the end, charcoal briquettes. (laughs) In another cookbook called Women's Day Crockery Cuisine, published around 1990, there was a custard recipe that called for cooking, listen to this, an unopened can of condensed milk in a crock pot for four hours. If you attempted to follow the recipe, you would discover that after about two hours, the can and the crock pot would blow up, shattering glass in the lid all over the kitchen. It's not surprising then that the publishers chose to take that cookbook off the market after about six months. (laughs) Sometimes recipes are missing important ingredients, ingredients that really make or break the recipe. But what about the ingredients of a healthy church? If you were to say, what is necessary to bake a healthy church? What is necessary to create or form or to characterize a healthy church? Immediately, to my mind, comes the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. Those are the ingredients of a healthy church. Or perhaps you could think about the characteristics of love over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that love is what? It's patient. It's kind. It is not arrogant or rude. It believes and hopes and bears all things. Those are the ingredients of a healthy church. 
But Paul is concerned that the Corinthian church may be, may be missing two key ingredients, and I want to share them with you this morning. First of all, he senses there is a lack of peace, and then secondly, he senses that there's a lack of purity. And these are ingredients that we must guard in our own hearts, that we as individuals and that we as a church, that we preserve these important, these essential ingredients in a healthy church and in a Christian life. Let's look first of all at the lack of peace that Paul is concerned about in verse 20. He says again, I fear that perhaps when I come, I will find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. And then he lists several different characteristics that he's hearing murmurings and rumors about still going on and he has seen them with his own eyes in his past experience of the church. Quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I mean, it would be just enough if he said, I'm afraid I'm going to come to you and see quarreling and jealousy. But like, that's not enough. He has to keep going and giving this long, frightening list of the spiritual illnesses he is afraid he is going to find when he comes to the church of Corinth. Let's just look at these words very briefly. And he actually coins a couple of these terms himself. Some of these words were very unique and found hardly anywhere else in the ancient world except in Paul's own writings. Others were more common words. He starts by saying that he might see quarreling. Quarreling refers to strife, wrangling, wrestling. 1 Timothy 6, Paul warns against those who have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels with words, which, listen to this, leads to constant friction. Where there is quarreling, fighting, and backbiting, whether it's verbal or physical or just in the attitude and the body language, this can lead to constant friction. And what does friction do? It creates heat. Not light, but heat. It just creates pain and discomfort and danger. He says also he's afraid he's going to find jealousy. Zelos, or we get our English word zeal from this idea of, of passion. He's afraid that people are going to be jealous of one another's gifts, of one another's blessings. It's a, it's, it, it, it's a tragic thing to think about a church that is full of people who are just jealous and looking at one another rather than keeping their eyes fixed upon God. In 1 Corinthians 3, he referred to both quarreling and jealousy or strife and jealousy. And he said, you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? There it is, jealousy and strife or jealousy and quarreling. Those things had been the history of the church. He had written about them, and he's afraid that although now he's coming toward the end of his second lengthy letter to Corinthians, that they're still going to be dealing with the same issues when he arrives. But he's not done, is he? He said he also fears it'll find anger. The Greek word is thumos. Uh, these become plural at this point, which means that it's not just one incidental one occasional outbreak but it's a it's an ongoing outburst of anger, anger that he's afraid he's going to find in the church and then he mentions hostility the idea is a self-seeking pursuit of political office well all we have to do is flip on the television for five minutes and we can see what kind of hostility occurs when there's a debate when there's campaigns, when there's commercials, when there's advertisements in the newspaper and advertisements in your mailbox, politics and hostility seem to go hand in hand. And while it's unfortunate and it's saddening to see in a nation, it's even more sad to see in a church 
where politics and power plays can end up causing people to, rather than seeing one another as partners, co-laborers in the Lord Jesus, to now begin to see themselves as enemies and antagonists. He's afraid he's going to find hostility, a self-seeking kind of pursuit of different offices and places of honor and precedence in the church. And then he's afraid of slander. Slander, it's, it refers literally to evil speaking. It's found only here and over in 1 Peter chapter 2 where the Apostle Peter says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Slander is often speaking ill of other people rather than hoping and believing in the best and assuming the best. And if there's a problem to go to that person in private, in a sensitive, in a discreet, in a loving way, slander is to speak evil of people behind their back, to sling mud at them, to seek to bring them down, to think the worst and cause other people to have uncharitable thoughts toward them as well. A related word, gossip. He's afraid of gossip that he's going to see and hear in the church. And this is an interesting word. It's the only place in all the New Testament that this particular word is found. And it's one of those words that is spelled like it sounds a little bit. So these are called onomatopoeias. I don't know if anybody is familiar with those, but I love these words. Like bang is a word that represents the sound that it makes, right? Pop, uh, fizz, these kinds of words. They're describing the phenomenon of what they are. Well, this Greek word, it, it sounds like the whispering of I'll attempt to pronounce it in Greek. I don't know if I can do it or not. Psithrismos. 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 I mean, you just start to almost hear the whisperings in the church go out as people are gossiping. And he's afraid he's going to hear that kind of gossiping language going on where people are whispering. Proverbs warns against how where there is whisperings and murmurs, it's like a dainty little morsel, like a delicious dessert breadcrumb that you just, yeah, I just gotta have a little more. I just need a little bit more of that to satisfy. And yet the more you take, the more that it demands and it can actually destroy a church. Then he refers to conceit. This is the only time that this occurs as a noun in the New Testament. It is found sometimes as a verb. And the idea is literally a puffing or an inflating. To brag or to be proud is to swell up and puff up outside of your natural size. That's literally what the idea of conceit and pride has. But Paul reminds us in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, verse 4, love is not arrogant. Love is not literally puffed up it is not swollen up trying to be bigger than it really is he he does say however knowledge will puff up if it's not taken with a healthy portion of humility and gratitude the last word in his list here of what he fears he will find is disorder it refers to instability confusion like the chaos or confusion of a riot or a war And this is the inevitable result of everything that he has just said. Where you have quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander and gossip and conceit, I guarantee there's going to be disorder. And God is not the author of that disorder. That does not come from the Lord. That comes from the enemy. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And he's afraid that he's going to find disorder in the church. James 3.16 says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And friends, this is not just for adults. 
You know, I'm primarily talking to the dads and the moms, to uh, the, the adult folks here in the room, but children, this applies to us as well, right? Kids, we need to be careful because what kind of things are coming out of your mouth at the dinner table or in the minivan or when you're playing with a toy that somebody else wants or when you're playing in the backyard and mom and dad aren't real close to you? Be very, very careful because you too could fall into quarreling, jealousy, anger and hostility and imagine you have an unsaved friend maybe it's a neighbor that lives near you and they hear what's going on on the other side of that fence and they hear how you're yelling at your brother or your sister is that going to make them think more of God or less of God they probably know that you're a Christian family and you claim to be a follower of Jesus but do you see how this kind of behavior says God doesn't really make any difference in my life Boys and girls, how many of you once in a while get frustrated with your brother or sister? Anybody? You know what? I never once in all my life got frustrated with my brother or sister or even was mean to my brother or sister because I was an only child. (laughs) Never once. It never happened. But I also never loved my brother or sister. I guarantee if I had a brother or sister, I would have struggled with selfishness and hostility and gossiping and anger and outbursts and disorder, and it makes mommy and daddy kind of sad, doesn't it? And we love it when we see peace in the home. Mom and dad, it's a challenge for us that we model this kind of love to our children. How are they going to do it if we're not doing it very well? They need to see in mom and dad, grandpa and grandma, what it means to get along and sometimes even disagree, but to do it in a kind and a charitable and a loving way, to put one another above ourselves. We can correct our children, but we need to make sure that we're modeling for them godliness and recognize where so much of this language and activity comes from. Jesus says it comes from deep down inside of here. It comes from the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I think it's downright scary sometimes when we just stop and we listen to ourselves and what we're saying and the tone of voice in which we're saying it and we think, whoa, did that come from here? Yeah, it came from here, but this traces back to here. It comes from the heart, from the mind, from the innermost part of our being and we still need a lot of sanctification to take place, don't we? Well, these were issues that had long plagued the church And these were the very occasion for the writing of 1 Corinthians. He fears he's going to still see them in the church all these months later. A lack of peace. I have to ask, uh, would I want to attend a church like that? Would I want to attend a church and worship at a church where there is quarreling and jealousy and anger and hostility and slander? And some of you say, oh, I've been in that kind of church before. And probably all of us have had some really, really bad experiences. But what strikes me is that Paul doesn't say, okay, you're done. We're shutting the doors. This is, this is not working. He, he continues to mentor and to disciple this church. He doesn't say that the church is finished at this point, but he does say that he might have to resort to church discipline if this continues to go on unchecked. He gets into that at the end of verse 21 and then even into chapter 13. You see, there are provisions that God has given to remain the purity and the integrity of a local church. When Paul wrote to Romans, he said in chapter 15, I have longed for many years to come to you. I hope to see you while passing to Spain once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Here he just says, man, I'm scared to death of what I'm going to see when I get there. But he's saying this out of fatherly love, isn't he? 
There's a tone of threat there. I may come and find what I do not wish, and you may find what you do not wish. He wants to come in in tenderness and love and to enjoy a sweet time of fellowship, but he knows there's a danger that he may have to come in using the whip, if you will, as Christ did, cleansing the temple out, coming in, being stern, being firm, having to rebuke them once again, going over the issues that he has addressed on multiple occasions. Clearly, there is a lack of peace, and yet even the way that he approaches this, he does it out of tenderness. I fear I will find this. What does that give them the opportunity to do? To fix it, right? to repent of this sin, and to make the necessary changes before Paul arrives. Oh, that Christ would not find these things in our lives, in our families, or in our church. You think about the opposite. You know, what would Paul love to find? He would love to find peace, unity, contentment, joy, encouragement, patience, Singing together, laughing together, praying together, serving together. He wants to see unity. That's what God desires. That's what we desire. And that is the opportunity that we have if we do things God's way. But there's a second missing ingredient that Paul fears he'll find in the church. And that is not just a lack of peace, but a lack of purity. A lack of purity that he described in verse 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of, and here's his list, impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. The word impurity refers, it's a general word, to general uncleanness. Romans 1 says this is a sign of a culture that begins to turn away from God and to suppress the truth, and instead, God gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. We see that in our culture. We see that in our world, in society. It's part of God turning away and removing his blessing from people that have said, we don't want God in our lives. And God says, okay, fine. I'll take away my blessing from you, and we'll see how that goes. When he turns a nation and a culture over to their own lust, it ultimately causes them to devour and destroy themselves. It's the hardening judgment of God. Sometimes judgment comes from fire out of heaven or pestilence and disease, but sometimes it just comes by God removing his restraining influence on a society and allowing sin to work its natural destruction in their lives. He's afraid he's going to find that kind of impurity inside the church. He knows it's in Corinth. But he's saying here, I'm afraid I'm going to see that same kind of impurity in the church itself. Then he refers to sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. We get our English word pornography from this. And it's not speaking just of pornography, but certainly that qualifies. But he's talking about any kind of sexual immorality. The marriage bed is undefiled. Anything outside of that is dishonoring to God. He refers to sensuality as well. Sensuality which is um, oftentimes, interestingly, it's connected to immorality. Immorality and false teaching often go hand in hand. Uh, As a kid, I remember sometimes getting confused about the difference between idolatry and adultery. They kind of sound the same as a little kid. You're like, what is adultery and what is idolatry? They're different, but you know what? There's actually a lot of overlap between them. 
Adultery is where you're not faithful to the spouse that God has provided, a husband to his wife, a wife to her husband. Idolatry is where you put anything in the place of God and worship it instead of the one true God. And what's fascinating is that oftentimes idolatry or false worship leads to adultery or sexual immorality of one sort or another. Listen to these verses in 2 Peter chapter 1 and notice how false teaching begins to corrupt not only the head but also the heart and the body. False prophets arose among the people, Peter says, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And here it is. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Jude says something similar. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. It doesn't take God by surprise ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So you see, good doctrine and good behavior, they go hand in hand. False doctrine leads to immoral uh, living and lifestyles. He's afraid he's going to find a lack of purity in the church. These three sins that he mentions in verse 21, impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality, they also happen to be the three vices that are at the top of the list that Paul gives in Galatians chapter 5. Remember the fruit of the Spirit? Well, earlier in that same chapter, we also have a record of the deeds of the flesh. The deeds of the flesh are contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is saying, put off the old man or the old woman, get rid of the deeds of the flesh, mortify and kill that, put in its place the fruit of the Spirit. Allow the Spirit to produce His fruit of righteousness in your lives. The very first three things that he says in Galatians 5.19 are sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. What would cause the Corinthian church, after all they've been through, all that Paul has done for them, to still struggle with these areas? And, and I can think of a few areas that they may have uh, been responsible for but also that i think we need to be on on guard against as well first of all we can slip into shocking egregious sins like this when we revert to our old lifestyle will hopefully be the means of grace that will sort of shake them up and wake them up to their tolerance of sin so they won't continue to allow it to go on he says i fear when i come again i will be humbled before you. You know, that just really struck me. How would Paul be humbled? I mean, after all, this is the church's problem, right? But then I thought about how a parent feels when a child begins to stray from the faith. It is a very humbling, broken-hearted kind of experience when a child does not place their faith in Jesus or they walk away from the faith that they once claimed to have. And you continue to love them and pray for them and reach out to them and you want them to be reconciled from God, but is it not a humbling experience when someone that you love so dearly is no longer walking with God and making wise decisions? I think that Paul is afraid he's gonna show up at the church and instead of smiles and laughter and hugs, there's gonna be sorrow and grief and some really hard conversations. He fears he's going to have to be that stern disciplinarian rather than the tender father. And he even says he may have to mourn. I may have to mourn over many of those who have sinned earlier and not repented. Where is the place of deepest mourning? Is it not a funeral where we lose someone who we love? 
And as Christians, if, if a believer dies, there is sadness, but there's also joy. We don't grieve as those who are without hope. But Paul is almost alluding to the fact that he may have to come and treat some of these people as spiritually dead. If he comes and finds that they are not changing and they're just stubbornly continuing to be unrepentant after so many appeals to repent and turn to the Lord, ultimately he may have to just mourn and grieve that apparently they didn't know Christ after all and hand them over to Satan and pray for their salvation, but there's no longer any signs of life and spiritual breath in the lives of some of these people if this persists unchecked. There are signs here that some have professed faith in Christ, but they're not showing the signs of genuine repentance. The next course of action will be to mourn, and then in chapter 13, to not spare them, but send them outside the church. Well, how did the church respond to this letter? We don't have a third Corinthians in our Bibles. Uh, we also don't have Jesus write a letter to the Corinthian church there in Revelation 2 and 3. He was writing to the churches of Asia Minor, and there was kind of a, a circuit of trade and of communications where all those churches were sort of on the same roadway. But what's fascinating is there is another letter that was written to the Corinthians very, very early in church history. It's called First Clement, and it's not part of sacred scripture but it's probably one of the earliest, if not the earliest, extra-biblical texts that we have of a pastor writing to a church that we know about. Clement was most likely a personal uh, companion and friend of the Apostle Paul. Clement is even mentioned in the book of Philippians. And the early church had record of a letter that Pastor Clement wrote to the Corinthians. And in that letter... He said that they were still dealing with some of the same issues that Paul wrote about here. Now, the good news is that that letter may have written, been written several decades after this letter was written. So perhaps they repented and responded well and grew in a new season of health and growth and then began to slip back into those old, old patterns again. The bad news is that no matter how much we improve today, we got to be on guard against tomorrow as well. And never, ever let our guard down or assume that we've gotten past these sins and temptations. Listen to Clement as he pleads with the Corinthian church in a letter that he wrote probably toward the end of the first century A.D. Again, it's not inspired scripture, but you can hear the echoes of his friend, the Apostle Paul, writing to this church. He says, let us therefore with haste put an end to this state of things. Let us fall down before the Lord and beseech him with tears that he would mercifully be reconciled to us and restore us to our former beauty and holy practice of brotherly love. Clement said, love unites us to God. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love bears all things, is long-suffering in all things. There is nothing base, nothing arrogant in love. Love admits of no schisms. Love gives rise to no seditions. Love does all things in harmony. By love have all the elect of God been made perfect. Without love, nothing is well-pleasing to God. Wise words from a pastor, a pastor who had learned personally under the Apostle Paul, wrote to this church some time later, and truly, I think we all can agree, without love, nothing is well-pleasing to God. May God help us to grow in love and add these essential ingredients of peace and purity that are so often missing from God's church. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word this morning, and thank you so much for the cleansing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
if there be anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, Lord, we are not surprised by this kind of behavior for it is what it is to live in the flesh and to fulfill and satisfy the longings of the flesh and the cravings of our bodies. But Lord, we are called to be holy and set apart to reflect the obedience of Christ himself. And I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know the Lord, that today, right now, they would feel the overwhelming burden of their sin, would cry out to God for salvation, would look to Jesus who hung upon the cross for their sins, that they would believe in him and him alone for eternal life, and that they would be saved, that you would cleanse them of their sins, that you would nail the certificate of debt to the cross where it is paid for once and for all, and then beginning today and every day for the rest of their lives, Lord, that you would help them, that you would help all of us to live lives of holiness, purity, and obedience. You saved us for a purpose, God. You saved us to become a people who are holy and set apart. You even describe us as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Lord, let that be true in our little church here. Grow us in love, for without love, it's impossible to please you. And we pray it in Christ's name, amen.